You've survived the worst. Trauma, loss, rejection. The reality is, your pain can be a crutch, or it can be the thing that launches you. You're listening to the Purpose Through Pain podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you experience true freedom and breakthrough. Tune in each week as guests share their incredible life lessons from their personal stories and hear from experts who can give you the tools you need to stop surviving and start thriving. Here to help you find purpose through your pain is your host, Joseph James. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another great show of Purpose Through Pain podcasts. I have a gentleman named Kerry Human that's on the show today. Carrie is a heart-centered facilitator, mindfulness coach, dedicated to creating brave spaces for people to discuss and explore complex topics. He now facilitates change by hosting workshops on diversity, equity, on uh, and inclusion, communication, radical kindness, mental health, and mindfulness to help shift the way organizations view their culture and team dynamics. Uh, He is on a personal mission to empower and inspire others to live their best lives through the virtues of kindness and mindfulness. And I probably would say a lot of forgiveness in there, Carrie. Thanks so much and welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Joseph. Really looking forward to this time together. Absolutely. Carrie, I've had a little chance to kind of dive into your Instagram and and, and a little bit of your story and you've written a book, um, but you experienced something that definitely other people have experienced in their life, but it definitely come at, at, at a cost to you throughout your childhood. And I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it right now, but take us back to your childhood and in terms of how you were raised, the family you grew up in that leads you to the way you think and believe right now. Yeah. You know, growing up. So it's interesting because my life, I feel when I look back on it, I feel like there are different chapters of it. And, you know, initially growing up, I was born in Los Angeles, California. Uh, my mom was from Queens and uh, my dad, uh, which I'll get into a little bit more, was from Louisiana, but his family lived in uh, California. We were, we were in what some people call the jungle, which is in Los Angeles, pretty rough area, um, but a pretty, you know, traditional family in the sense that, you know, my mom and dad were you know, pretty young, you know, just working to try to, you know, make ends meet. And, you know, by the time I was three, I was starting to recognize that like they, they weren't getting along. Like, I just remember a lot of arguments and, you know, just not really being on the same page. However, in the backdrop of that, I was always, uh, I always felt like I had love and I felt like I had support. Uh, But just seeing my mom and dad, you know, at a young age, arguing and fighting, um, I, I just started to recognize that there wasn't something there. So they split up. Uh, and then from three to till about seven, I would, I would live with my mom. She was a single mom. Uh, and then I would hang out with my dad and his family generally on the weekends, or if there was a school uh, break or something, I'd go out, go and hang out with his family, which was just a couple of miles away. So, um, I mean, that's kind of the, 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 the beginning, uh, in terms of just kind of how things started out. Um, I could elaborate, but I'll just take a step back to see if there was anything uh, there. Yeah. So at at this point, you're when you're growing up, you know, in this family, very toxic environment that you start to see. How did that mold start molding and shaping your mind on how you viewed your mom versus how you viewed your dad at that time? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question, Joseph, because because I spent the most time with my mom and because my mom was more emotionally available, meaning she was willing to talk about stuff, um, whenever they would get in an argument, I would only really hear my mom's side. So at the end of the day, I found as I got older, it was hard for me to build trust with other men because I never really built it. You know, my mom and dad would get into an argument a couple of weeks go by, I would go visit my dad, but for the most part, I'd be playing with my cousins or hanging out with my aunt and my uncle or my grandma, but never really talking to him about what happened. So you figure time goes by, that starts to stack. Um, that emotional availability that I think I had from my mom wasn't really there for my dad. So I just feel like that dynamic was really interesting because I think also too, I started to believe that, well, as a, as a young man, um, I'm not supposed to talk about my emotions. Like this is what women do, you know, and I'm I'm just here to listen. Uh, so I I definitely internalized that and just felt because of all the other men that were in my life at the time, because they acted the same way, I just assumed that that was, that's how you do it. You know, women share their emotions and men keep them to themselves. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's uh, growing up in that generation, it, it can still affect us a lot till this day, even as an adult, because we take on that mindset of, I have to be hard. I have to be tough. I can't share my emotions because that's not only just the way I was raised, but now it becomes a condition to responses, you know, a conditioned emotion of not opening up and pouring out and being emotional and maybe even detaching. But now it becomes something where the moment we're in a situation we have to be tough. We can't, mm-hmm. it becomes a conditioned response for us, you know, and it's, it's hard for a lot of men, you know, even in the coaching aspect is I coach a lot more women because of men feel like they have to be tough and they can't open up, mm. you know? So, so take us on from there. You, you're, you're, you're now living with your mom. The family is split. At, at what age was this for you? Yeah. So I was seven. So right around the time of like seven, eight, Uh, There were a couple of earthquakes in California at the time. You know, my aunt, my grandma, my cousins, I had a few people there from my mom's side. Uh, They essentially said, hey, let's move to Atlanta. Let's get away from these earthquakes. You know, it's a little bit more affordable. Let's move to Atlanta. So at seven, I moved to Atlanta with my mom, a couple of cousins, my aunt, my grandma, and my dad's family stayed in California. So from from about seven till about 12 over the summer, I would visit my dad's family. Or if there was a school break again, I would visit his family. Uh, But I just wasn't seeing him as frequently because we weren't in the same state. So yeah, once we moved, I mean, getting integrated in Atlanta, I mean, it was tough because I missed my dad. You know, I missed my cousins. I missed my grandma, but it was also cool because now I was living in a house with my mom, my grandma, my aunt, and my two cousins. So I felt like I had brothers when I never really had that before. And I had other family members who I could lean on, uh, who were all in the same space. As far as I knew, I mean, we were, we were living the dream, you know? Yeah. So what happened from there? You, you, you feel like you got a connection now. You feel like you've got a family. You're not missing your dad as much because you've got that now, you know, take me what's going on in your life at that moment. Yeah. So, I mean, again, just trying to figure out, you know, what it means to, to be a young kid, you know, in the, in the early nineties, um, you know, there was a moment in time where, you know, I was going back and forth with my mom and dad between Atlanta and California. And, you know, they were still kind of arguing over the phone. I would pick up on things. My mom would say things to me about my dad. And I just, you know, it, it just, it wasn't, it was never really positive. And 
I remember when I was, you know, right around 12 or so, um, you know, my mom was on the phone. And by this time, you know, I'm skipping a lot of the story, but by this time, my mom met someone else. I had a little sister um, and her partner was in the mix. I mean, he he definitely was more available. Uh, but again, in terms of an example as like a father figure, now that I'm older, I recognize that there were still a lot of things uh, where he just wasn't emotionally available, but he was like my basketball coach and, you know, participated in football and things like that. So I, I definitely felt like I was developing the connection, but right around the time I was 12, my mom and dad were actually on the phone going back and forth. And essentially what ended up coming up was there was a blood test that was taken when I was a kid, like literally three months old. And the doctor said to my mom and dad, like, Hey, you know, Carrie has, um, this particular trait, uh, sickle cell anemia is common in the African-American community, uh, the trait, which isn't deadly, but if you have full-blown sickle cell anemia, it's something to worry about. The doctor said, I have the trait, but the problem was neither of my parents had the trait. So the doctor said, hey, I don't know what's going on with this. If you all want to take another test, you can, but something's not right. And for whatever reason, at the time, my mom and dad didn't really do anything about it. They just kind of swept it under the rug. So 12 years had gone by and, you know, my mom's like, hey, you know, send me some money. Where's the support? Like, what's going on? This is your son. Um, And my dad essentially asked for another test, which ultimately ended up coming back saying that I wasn't his son. And in this moment, I mean, again, I've talked about this on other platforms, but I just remember, I mean, it literally felt like Mike Tyson hit me in the gut. Like it was just one of those moments where it's hard to put it in words. You know, there's, there, there are no words. I mean, I blacked out. I was in tears. Um, the, the backlash of that, uh, the abandonment, the, the insecurity. I mean, just so many different emotions came up at that time. And I mean, I think maybe even just until just a couple of years ago, was I really able to just kind of have the courage to like lift that up again and really face like what that trauma what that situation did to me traumatically and how can I really start to heal myself from that? Because I had a lot of resentment more so for my mom than I did my dad at the time. And it just took me a while to work through that. Yeah. Without a doubt. Now, did you overhear this conversation with your mom on the phone or is, is that how you found out was overhearing everything? Yeah. So they were arguing back and forth and essentially my mom, you know, she was upset. My sister's dad was in the room and my mom was like, Hey, sit down. You know, she kissed me on the forehead, you know, looked me in my eyes, gave me a big hug. And essentially she told me. And, you know, at that point, you know, obviously there's a part of her that's, you know, probably going through her own shame and guilt and all these other things. But at the time, you know, my mom wasn't necessarily convinced that the test was right. So there was, I guess, kind of this kind of dangling carrot where it's like, you know, I think we should take another test. Like, I feel like this is your father. So there were many years that went by where there was just kind of this dangling of let's take this test. But I didn't have the courage to be like, hey, dad, can you take this test again? I didn't take the test. Uh, So many years went by where it's just kind of, uh, is this my dad? Is this not my dad? I mean, there was no follow up. So again, kind of going back to not being available emotionally. I mean, this happened and I didn't talk to my dad for years. Like I didn't hear from anybody. It was just kind of a, this is your dad, cut it off now you're not talking to this person at all. So there was just a lot of, I mean, so many different things going on inside of my head. And whenever I would talk to my mom about it, it was just kind of pushed away. Again, I think for her, you know, she just didn't know how to address it. She wasn't really sure of what was going on. So, you know, I don't, I don't hold 
I don't hold her or him to blame. But at the time, as a 12-year-old, I mean, I just didn't have the emotional capacity to really monitor what my emotions were doing. Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing about it is not only do we not have that at 12 years old, you know, I mean, if you think about it, of course, we live in an inf- we live in a, a, an age now that information is at the tip of our fingers, you know, and we, we really don't have a problem of finding information about something. You know, if you need mental health, you can Google it. If you need therapy, you can Google it. Back then in the 90s, it's not something you ever thought about. Well, let me go to the library and Google meant or, or not Google because it wasn't there. But let me look up mental health. And the let Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. 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 You would look at you would get a definition, you know, mm-hmm. is we would ask people, we would reach out to people it's like, hey, what do you know about this? But there, there's the thing about it is like our parents didn't know. Our parents had no idea what it would be like. Oh, how do I process this stuff? Well, how did my parents process it? Well, my dad would like, you like, if, you know, you don't cry unless you're hurt, you need to go to the hospital, you know, kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. as a 12 year old, you're not one, you're not processing it the way it needs to be done. And then as a parent, what do you even do for your child? Mm. You know, and so the best way a lot of people did at that time is just don't talk about it. It'll eventually heal itself on its own because we lived under the premise that time heals all wounds, right? Mm, yeah. You know? Which is the biggest misconception of anything because time, I, I don't feel that time heals all wounds unless you're doing something during that time. Mm. You know? So now years have gone by. You haven't talked to your dad. No further tests have been done. You're not, you know, it's not being discussed with your mom. What happens after this? Where, where did where did it come about that you actually got the news? Yeah, so I mean, so much time went by. I mean, I think well, the interesting thing about it, Joseph, is I didn't tell anyone about this. Like, I didn't talk to anyone about it. It wasn't like I went to my my grandma or my aunt or my friends. Like, it was something that I just kept to myself and I just lied about it. Like, I didn't even say anything happened. So, I think for a long time there was just kind of an insecurity and. I found myself just kind of latching on to any kind of male figures who seemed to take notice in me, you know, like I was just looking for something to kind of fill that, that void, you know? And again, you know, a lot of time went by. Um, I mean, a lot of time went by and just kind of out of the blue, um, you know, this was, I was 17, 18 by this time, you know, like I said, a lot of time went by, I kind of buried it, just kind of forgot about it my grandma, my dad's mom reached out to me. Somehow she found the number or yeah, my mom had the same number. She reached out and just said, you know, Hey, you know, care bear. That's what my grandma calls me. Haven't talked to you in a while. Miss you, you know, would love to see you. I'd love to send for you to come out to California and see everybody. And, you know, I haven't talked to any of them for almost, you know, six, seven years. So for me, I'm like, wow, that's weird. She's not even talking about it. Does she know like what's what's going on? There's no way, there's no way she couldn't know. Um, but I just, I didn't say anything about it. I'm like, everything seems cool. I mean, I miss them. You know, I miss my dad. I miss my cousins. I miss my grandma. I would love to come see you all. So a couple of weeks went by, a couple of months went by and, um, you know, she sent for me to go out to California, uh, got to see my family. You know, it, it literally felt like a family reunion. You know, we connected, I saw my dad, I saw my cousins, you know, I hugged everybody. But the strange thing, Joseph was, no one said anything about this huge elephant that was in the room, which was this test says that this isn't your son. 
um, or your nephew or your grandson, but no one talked about it. And again, you know, I'm 17, 18 now. So it's like, I'm not going to bring it up. I don't know what to say about it. And, you know, I don't blame anyone. Again, it was a super difficult topic. So, you know, I left that, you know, sort of weekend trip. I went back home. I'm like, mom, you know, it's like, it was great. It was good to see everyone. No one said anything. And my mom just sort of justified it or verified. And she's like, you know, I still believe that like, that's your dad. You know, I feel like we need to take the test again. So it kind of just like ticked the model in my mind that like, okay, this wasn't a dream, you know, cause I think because it happened so young, a part of me just didn't believe that it happened. Um, but then going out there and just having so much love given to me and then coming home and my mom saying, I still believe this is your dad. There's a part of me that's like, well, do I really need the test? You know, like, like, what if it's really not my dad? What if I really find that out? Like, do I really want to give this up? Um, so a part of me, again, like I didn't, it's like, I didn't want to know the truth at this point. Like I just wanted to connect with that part of my family. And uh, just for the next you know, few years, I kind of started this cycle of just going out every couple of years. I was starting to call my grandma again. I was reaching out to my dad a little bit, but really just starting to feel like, okay, there's an opportunity to rebuild this. Um, even if I have no idea how I'm going to rebuild it. Yeah. Wow. That had to have been tough. I mean, you know, even at the age of 17, we process a lot, but yet, like you said, how do you address the elephant in the room? You, you know, how do you, especially when nobody is acting different, mm-hmm. you know, you can always tell, or, or maybe now it's just like, okay, everybody's acting awkward. Let's go ahead and do this now. But when, when people aren't, you know, um, how was it seeing your dad at that time, knowing that in the back of his mind, he knew something or maybe even denied you or according to your mom, denied you as his son? How was that seeing him for that first time after six years? Yeah, you know, it was it was an interesting moment, Joseph, because by this time, again, I mean, I was going through these full cycles of life. And, um, you know, I started I started reading. Um, I'd read like the autobiography of Malcolm X and then I read Siddhartha and like, I felt like my spiritual path was starting to begin. So something in me was starting to understand this concept of forgiveness and just being present with people. You know, again, this is like the super early stages of it. But when I saw him, like there was no, like there were no ill feelings, you know, it was just like, man, like I missed you. Like I, I love you. You know, like I I was trying to just connect the dots. Like I really just, I, I didn't go into it with any ill feelings at all. It was just really good to see him. Did you feel like you had hope at that moment? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, again, it's like, I was thinking like, maybe the test was wrong. Maybe the test was wrong. However, there was a part of me that like would look at pictures of him when he was younger. And I'm like, that kind of looks like me. Like, maybe I look more like my mom. Like, I was just still trying to connect the dots because there are a lot of things about him and I that are very different. You know, we have a very different build. We have a different face. But I'm like, you know, maybe I just look like my mom. Yeah. So what happened from there? Yeah. So again, you know, giving you the abridged version, a lot of time went by, um, you know, by this time, um, you know, I've got through my twenties, twenties were really intense. You know, I felt like for me, uh, again, just a lot of bottled up emotions and not really dealing with stuff, trauma. Um, you know, I was working in like the restaurant industry and trying to pursue a career as an actor in the movie business. And, you know, if you know anything about the restaurant industry and that culture, I'm not saying everyone's like this, but there's a very heavy emphasis on like spirits and just partying and just hanging out and just being out. And uh, I really embraced that. Like I, I really felt like I became a functional alcoholic through my entire 20s. 
And um, it almost feels like a blur. I mean, I would reach out to them every once in a while, but at this point, I think I was just sort of exploring what it meant to just get drunk like every night. I, I don't really know what, what that was about for me, but I do feel as I look back that it was me trying to numb myself from really dealing with what was going on. And again, this is a story for another podcast, uh, but I had a couple of different experiences happen in my 20s that really opened me up. And one in particular was, um, I was like 28, 29, but I you know, just had a night where I just binged. I woke up, drank, went to work and just kind of was doing it in this cycle. And I just kind of had a moment where like I looked in the mirror and I just didn't really recognize myself and just kind of had that internal voice just kind of like, yo, man, like, is this it? Like you were pursuing a career to be an actor and you wanted to do all this stuff. And now you just go to work, you drink, you go back to work, you drink, like it was a cycle. And um, I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a couple days off. And, you know, by this time, like I said, I was on the spiritual quest. So I started reading like, you know, Dr. Wayne Dyer and Deepak Chopra. And I heard about Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich and Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I read The Alchemist and, you know, all these other books, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, like all this stuff was on my radar, but I just felt like I wasn't, I wasn't, embracing myself or surrounding myself around people who would uplift and, and help me bring out those qualities. But I went to a library that was in uh, the, the town that I lived in. And um, I just kind of overheard someone um, in the library, kind of outside of the book area, talking about a meditation retreat they'd gone to. Now, at this point, I was familiar with meditation, but I, I didn't really have any experience with it. And I'd always been curious, but I just thought that that was some kind of mystical thing. Like, it just wasn't in alignment with who I was, and I just I wasn't into it. But I heard this guy talking about it. My new Deepak Chopra was really into meditation, and Dr. Wayne Dyer and some of these other people I was following. So I just kind of went over to the guy, and I'm like, hey, man, can you tell me more about that meditation retreat you just went to? And he gave me this information. I looked it up. And um, long story short, I ended up signing up for this 10-day silent meditation retreat without having any meditation background. Like something just it's like, like, what is it? Like when the pain, uh, like, like your pain will pull you into like your vision, your pain will push you into your vision pulls you. I'm destroying that. But <laughs> essentially like, I just had a better vision of myself and I just, I'm like, I'm willing to do anything to get out of this, this rut. So just in a, in a couple more words, I go to this meditation retreat and you know, to my surprise, it's like, you know, they take your phone, like they don't want you really talking to people. You're eating vegetarian meals, which seemed wild to me at the time. And um, essentially I'm meditating for 12 hours a day with no real experience coming into it. And the first couple of days were really hard. But once I got into like day six, day seven, I remember I like kind of went on a walk because you take breaks and I just started crying like really fiercely, like all these tears started coming up, all these different emotions started coming up. And, um, you know, I went back in and I just started having all these different flashbacks about my family and just thinking about all these different things. So long story short, that meditate, that, that process was life-changing. There's a lot more that happened there, but I felt like being at that workshop essentially aligned me with my inner voice because I felt like through my twenties, through the trauma, I lost touch with who I actually was. I was responding to all the thoughts in my mind and not connected to my heart. So when I got out of that, um, I started building a relationship with my inner self. And as a result, some more time had gone by. Again, I'm just kind of giving you some backstory, but some more time had gone by. My sister, um, now, you know, she has a kid, she's older. 
but she was telling me about these DNA tests that were out. You know, they started becoming popular kind of in the early mid two thousands. And I'm like, I'm not taking a DNA test. You know, I, you know, I watched total recall. I saw minority report. Like I just didn't want someone to steal my identity or just something, something wild, you know, but she took it. It came back. I was really fascinated by the data and I'm like, wow, you know, I wasn't really thinking about, I'm going to find my dad, but I'm like, it'd be really interesting to just learn about my ancestors. You know, as a African-American male in America, I know I'm from Africa, but Africa is a big continent. Like where from Africa, like what tribe? Um, so that was, that was, that was sort of my catalyst to, to sort of take the plunge with the DNA test. So I ordered the DNA test. I do the swab. I sent it out a couple of weeks go by and, um, you know, the results come back and it's like, Whoa, like, um, 87% Nigerian and, you know, 5% Swedish and all these other weird things start coming up. And I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. I started learning more about the potential tribe I could be a part of. Um, so I'm like, wow, that's cool. So then a couple more weeks go by and I get this message. Um, they kind of have like a social media platform where people can message you when different matches happen. But I get this message and essentially the message is like, you know, hi, my name is Robert. I stumbled on your profile today and I'm in extreme shock. Uh, it says that you're my son, question mark. Uh, please respond back. And I literally, the first thing that came to mind was like, this is some crazy, you know, marketing scam or strategy to like get me to upgrade my membership because I had like a basic membership, but I'm like, no way. And, and the guy had a picture up and I'm like, that looks like me, but like an older version of me. So I, the first thing I did was I'm like, mom, mom, you know, I sent her a picture. I'm like, who, do you know who this is? And she's like, no, this is a scam. Like, what is this? Like, what's going on? And I think something in her was like, you know, what the hell is this? What's going on? So I'm like, I'm going to explore it. So I sent the guy a message and I'm like, Hey, you know, thanks for reaching out. This has actually been a pretty sensitive topic for me for a long time. Um, so I just started asking him some questions just to see if it was like a bot or like, what's up with this dude. And all the questions, all his answers were just kind of lining up with the timeline. And I'm like, okay. So I went back to my mom and I'm like, mom, this guy is like saying all the right stuff. Like, you don't, do you, do you know who this is? So I'm like, how about this? How about you two get on the phone? and talk about some stuff. Cause I want to be respectful to that process. Everyone was young. I get it. I'm not trying to put anyone in the hot seat, but essentially they had a chance to talk for a minute. I got back on the phone, um, him and I talked, but long story short, I ended up finding out that my dad, um, my mom, my dad was a musician. Um, and my mom was just really into the music. So it sounds like there might've just been a night of magic when my mom and dad had split they might've hooked up and then my mom and dad got back together, but just sort of kept the, kept things going. So I was just kind of right in the middle of that. I feel like that's kind of a long thought, but what I'll just get at is, well, I'll just, I'll just leave it there and see if you have any responses to that. No. So, I mean, you know, uh, I, <laughs> I guess what was, what was going through your mind as you started to see it unfold in terms of this is, I wasn't looking for the truth, so to say, you mm. know, but now all of a sudden it's right here in front of me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, by this time I'm, you know, 36, 37. So this wasn't too long ago. And again, you know, I've been, I've been on the path for a while, you know, big fan of, you know, Star Wars and some of these other movies. And I just felt like this was, this was kind of like my moment to like show up and just be present and be be the man that I would want to be for 
my kid or for whoever's looking up to me. Um, so I just knew going into this, if I had any sort of judgment or animosity or anything like that, the breakthrough, the connection that I wanted to build with my biological father wouldn't be possible. Like there's no way it could be possible. So I just, you know, getting to know him and talking to him and just learning more about his career as a professional musician and some of the people he met and just how he grew up and some of his idiosyncrasies and how he talked and how he walked. It's like, wow, this dude literally looks like me. We talk the same. We have the same fingers. We've got the similar head. Like it was just, it's mind blowing to like, look at someone who was part of you being on the planet for the first time in your life at 36 years old. So for me, it was I just had so much gratitude in my heart, you know, and even with my mom, you know, I think in the beginning she was a little shaky about it because I was very vocal about this experience. You know, for me, it was about being vulnerable and sharing this, you know, it's not about me trying to get pity from people or just airing out my laundry. I'm like, yo, there are a lot of people who are, who have, or who will experience this. And if I have the courage to share this and talk about this, then why not? So because I was talking about it so openly, I think it made my mom a little uncomfortable because people are looking at her like, well, what happened? And at the end of the day, I'm like, mom, this isn't about you. This isn't about me. This isn't about him. This is about us healing and moving forward so that we can create a new relationship. So I think once that, once the early part started to trickle off and we really started to see that this is something that could develop into something, um, I felt like everyone got on the same page. And I, I swear, Joseph, when, when I was on the phone with my mom, and my biological father for the first time, I mean, it was probably one of the most, it was just a, it was an emotionally charged moment that just filled my heart in a way that I don't, I don't think I've ever felt before. It was amazing. Do you think Carrie, that if you had not gone through the meditation and, you know, deepening your own mind in terms of changing your mindset, the forgiveness, the healing, things like that, that when you did meet your biological father, that your mindset or your heart would have been the same reaction. You ever think about that? Yeah. I mean, Joseph, it's hard to say. And I'd like to think that, you know, I would have showed up the same way, but I mean, I, I look at the darkness that I got to face early on through my practice and just my commitment to meditation and personal growth. And I mean, there were some hard moments there where I had to have those tears by myself and, those lonely nights and being uncertain. I mean, I think me dealing with that darkness on my own and coming out on the other side and still able to love myself made it so that I could show up and be that person. Because I know if this scenario happened for five other people, the scenario wouldn't have been the same. You know, there would have been animosity. There would have been some guilt. There would have been some shame. And maybe some of that stuff was present on the other side. Like I said, I still to this day don't know exactly exactly what my dad was going through because there's more to the story. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, just being able to connect with him and just his vulnerability, it's like I'd never seen or heard a man in my family, in my life, who'd been that vulnerable. I mean, he was telling me everything, you know, drug addiction to, you know, being promiscuous to losing all his money to having a heart attack and almost dying to wishing he was around for more of his kids, like just saying stuff that I never heard a man close to me talk about so openly, you wow. know? It's crazy. That's something that you had been searching for, the emotional connection with a man mm. your entire life, pretty much. Mm. It's now being met 
by the very man that was supposed to provide it to begin with, mm. but ultimately wasn't there. And that was your biological father mm-hmm. and no fault to anybody, you know, because of just the way things transpired. Mm-hmm. That's it's crazy. I, I, I put something up on the screen, but for the, for the listeners, you, you made a comment about dealing with darkness, but you said dealing with darkness alone. Mm. And I, I, I want you to, to really expand on that. But I also want the listeners to understand when you're in a dark place, okay, whether it's mentally, spiritually, physically, whatever you feel that is a dark place, because it's different for everybody. Number one is nothing wrong with getting help. Nothing mm. wrong. But there are certain things that we have to go through in life that we have to go through it alone, mm. you know, and it's, I, I, by profession, I'm a dog trainer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have trained dogs. I've trained dolphins. I've trained chickens. And of course the human aspect of training humans. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am yet not to find a correlation between training humans or raising humans and training and raising dogs. Mm. The learning is exactly the same, okay? Hmm. But it's amazing to watch when a dog, when the light bulb and, and, a, and the head of a dog goes off, when they have figured out how to do something without the influence of a human, hmm. okay? I'm sure that somebody in some point in time has seen funny videos of dogs climbing up halfway up a fence, using their paw to reach over and lifting the latch and using their nose to nudge the, th- nudge the fence. And then now they're out and free. We've all seen something to that. Well, the dog didn't all of a sudden just start watching videos on how to open the gate. You know, <laughs> he started figuring out on his own. Well, if I nudge it, that doesn't work. If I push it up, this may work. If I nudge it and push it up and all these different things. But when a dog can figure out on its own how to do it, it's something that happens in the brain along with us as well. If I figure out how to change a tire on my own, or let's just say do something with the, the engine of a car. Mm. Okay. It's one thing if we try to figure out by following directions, normally you, you've got to do it one or two times, but when you can actually figure it out on your own, there's things that happen in the brain that make that permanent, that learning lesson permanent. Okay. And so when you're dealing with darkness, when you learn to do things on your own without the help of everybody else, you learn how to apply that in so many other areas of your life because you discovered it, so to say, hmm. you know, but I want you to hit a little bit on that. I wanted to add that in for the listeners because there's nothing wrong with being one, nothing wrong with getting help on your own, but there's also, I want you to look at it as places of darkness as a place of this is a chance for me to do healing on my own without anybody else. Because Carrie, it doesn't matter what I could say as a coach, as a therapist, as a psychologist, whatever the case is, I can't make you cry. I can't make you dig deep down inside you to release emotions that have been bottled up. Hmm. Only you can do that. Yeah. I mean, you, you touched on a lot right there. And when I think about dealing with the darkness, I, I feel like the first thing that comes up for me is you know, there's a movie that came out in the early 2000s. Um, I actually really like the movie. It's called Fight Club. But there's just a scene where uh, Ed Norton's character is talking to his alter ego, Brad Pitt. And essentially, Brad Pitt is uh, pouring this like acid on his hand uh, and just telling him to feel the burn. But every time it starts to burn, Ed Norton's character like tries to go to a happy place and tries to go away from it. But every time he does that, Brad Pitt uh, slaps him and he says, no, like this pain right here is exactly where you need to be. If you just deal with it, 
um, you can work through it. And essentially he like neutralizes it with, I forget what exactly what he puts on it, but I just remember watching that and just sort of tying that to my life and just saying, wow, you know, I feel like for the longest time, whenever something happens, it's like, I'm trying to put myself in this happy state or I'm listening to music or I'm going to go play basketball or I'm calling up a girl or whatever. And again, you know, I think it's interesting because I feel like, you know, I've read so many books about positive mental attitude and how important it is to stay positive. But I think sometimes you can get drunk on the positivity because you're not allowing yourself to really experience what you're experiencing. Like, yes, it's important to bounce back and to have a positive outlook, but sometimes like you just really got to deal with some shit, like just real talk, you know? And I think for me, and I, you know, I've been criticized by a couple of people too. I'm just like, y'all are just being haters. Like, I'm not going to walk through the world, like in a negative attitude. I'm going to be positive all the time, no matter what. So I think for me, as I was just starting to go through these different phases in my life, I just kind of had these moments where I'm like, wow, like instead of trying to do this or do that, like, let's just sit with this, man. Like what is coming up for you when you think about what happened with your dad and some of the trauma that you experienced as a kid? Like, how does that make you feel? Like, write about it. Like what's, what's really coming up. And I just feel like having those moments of writing about it and talking to myself and crying and sharing it with, you know, a girlfriend or a friend, like I felt like it just really started to fill, help me fill my cup to where the, the shame or the embarrassment that I think might've come in my head from talking about it or expressing it, um, no longer was there. Like instead of seeing it as fear and shame and guilt, I saw it as vulnerability and vulnerability stopped being a bad word. It started being an empowering word that allowed me to really recognize that, wow, it's dark over here. Like, let's go this way. Let's go in the dark. Because what happens is eventually, if you train yourself to walk through the dark, you start to recognize that you're the light and you only need to see just a couple of steps in front of you. You'll get to where you need to go, but you got to trust that because the trust is what ultimately shines that light. So I think over time, I just started to recognize that the light is inside of me. So no matter how dark it is, I'm going to be able to see at least a couple of steps in front of me, which up until this point has led me to some really powerful experiences. Wow. Let's, let, let's, let's get caught up to where you're, you're now building the relationship with your biological father. Okay. How has that transpired to be where you're at now? Cause you were just talking about being in a different place right now. How, how has that happened? How has that transpired? Yeah. So it, it truly, truly has been a gift to have this time with my dad. I mean, two years and some change. Uh, we, I mean, we became best friends on a lot of different levels, uh, so much so that we had an opportunity to work on a book together. He spent some time in prison, um, suffered from, you know, bipolar disorder, um, just mental health was very shaky and um, spent some time in prison. But he also, you know, was a Grammy nominated songwriter and worked with artists like Prince and Shaka Khan and all these other big names. And you know, had a lot of money and then didn't have any money. So working with him on a book and just really getting him to just talk about his entire life uh, and then just going through all these pictures from him growing up all the way up until now. I mean, it's amazing how many pictures of my dad that I have from his lifetime. I have more pictures of him than I have of me or anyone else from my family because everything is digital these days. Um, But just being able to spend that time with him. Um, He was living in Vegas when I met him, but he moved to Portland. I'm in Seattle now, but he moved to Portland. So we were living in the same city. 
uh, right before the pandemic hit, I moved up to Seattle. So we, I, it's so weird. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't know where my dad is. Now I know where he is. Now he's moving here. Oh, and now I'm moving, um, which seems kind of strange, but I would go down and visit him. But it's, it's bittersweet, it's bittersweet, Joseph, because, you know, like I said, my dad suffered through mental illness for the majority of his life. Um, you know, decided to become sober, sober, you know, uh, became a born again Christian and just like really devoted himself to service and, you know, feeding the homeless and really just wanted to shine light on mental health. He, re- he recognized that a lot of people who are dealing with housing insecurity suffer from mental health. And he just wanted to be a bridge to just help communicate that, you know, you have no idea who these people are and what they've gone through. And it's literally just a couple of things that can get someone from, having this successful career to being on the streets to who knows. And, you know, like I said, uh, I'm kind of bouncing around, but we had a chance to work on uh, this book together. We collaborated and last year, um, New Year's Eve. Uh, so my, so I, I, through meeting my dad, I also met four other siblings and uh, we would essentially meet up with my dad uh, on the phone and just talk about what was going on. Uh, for us that that week, once a month. I'm sorry, we'd meet up once a month to talk about what was going on that month as a family. And uh, that was really cool, just getting to know my siblings and being in the same space with my dad. And um, on New Year's Eve, which happened to be the day that we were going to get together, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm really looking forward to connecting with you all and just talking about what you're most, you know, what are some of your challenges from this year? What are you most proud of? I'm super grateful to have you all in my life. Um, didn't believe this was possible, but here we are. And, um, you know, my dad was going through some stuff. You know, his birthday was a couple of weeks prior. Me and my fiance went up to see him, but he just was like, hey, I'm just not in the headspace. So I knew something wasn't right, but I couldn't get him to communicate. But long story short, uh, New Year's Eve comes. I get on the phone with my siblings. My dad decides he's not going to come. Um, we talk, you know, we're joking. We're looking forward and trying to make plans for stuff. Me and my fiance go out that night to go see her dad. It's still a pandemic. We go out to see her dad, who's who just turned 88. Love this guy. Uh, But we hang out with him for a bit. We grab some food uh, because we're just going to eat at home. And I get a call from my sister. It's like 1030 at night. So I'm like, okay, she's calling me at 1030 at night, like something. Maybe she butt dialed me. I don't know what's going on. Um, But long story short, she's like, like, dad's dead. And I'm like, well, what do you what do you what do you mean? And they're like, she was like, you know, they found his body. Um, He died by suicide. Um, And I'm just like, you know, let me let me just call you back when I get home. So. I hung up the phone. I still went in to get the, get the food. You know, the guy was, you know, I just, I couldn't hear anything. It was just kind of a blur. And I went back to the car. My fiance was like wishing someone happy new years. And I just, my energy was just in a whole nother place. And I just said, babe, I, I just need to close my eyes and, um, you know, just, yeah, when we get home, I'll share some stuff with you. But essentially I just kind of sat in the car, man, uh, while we were driving home and all these different things just started to race through my mind. And, you know, as much as I, you know, I think when anyone deals with something like this, you know, the first question is like, what could I have done differently? You know, what could I have said? What could I have done? Could I have been there more? And and then again, you know, going back to the practice and just really honoring uh, that space, I recognized that I did everything that I could do. And this was so much bigger than me. You know, it didn't make it any better, but I just feel like, you know, once I got home, you know, I went to tell my fiance and I just, you know, burst into tears, you know, everything started to come up. Um, But it's just been a really interesting process because here I am, you know, someone who's been on this journey to just like connect with my dad and have that, 
you know, that intimate relationship with him. And then I get it. And now he's, he's gone. Um, so just the opportunity to collaborate with him and see him and, you know, share space with him um, has really been, been a blessing. And since that point, I've just become a mental health advocate and have just really pushed myself to share that story and just really advocate and just talk about how important it is to be vulnerable and just share, you know, what's going on with your mental health, because you just never know. You never know what someone's going through. Man, sorry to hear about your dad, man, but it's a powerful story, man. You know, it's, it's still a story of triumph Hmm. because, you know, like you said, you never know where somebody's at in their current space, you know, but the fact that you chose to better yourself mentally, because think about this. Think about if you would have met him during the time of you were struggling with addictions and how you would have responded to him finding out he was your biological father. Mm-hmm. You know, we could say what if all day long and that's not what we're doing, but because of you were in a different state of mind then, and this is the importance of dealing with that darkness is we, because you were in that different state, you made those last couple of years for your dad remarkable. All those things that he had been searching for. It's like he was saving all those things for that moment with you, mm. you know, and brother, you have a powerful story, but not only do you, you know, with your dad, with the book, you know, your lifehood, but you're coaching people. Now you're coaching people in the mental health and, in being able to, to, to take what they've gone through and the, and the pain that they've gone through and finding different things. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, you know, I mentioned just kind of early on just how powerful meditation has been for me. And I didn't mention this, but when I went to that meditation retreat and came back, it didn't happen right away, but I, I became sober and I've been sober for almost 10 years now from alcohol. Again, it's different for everyone. I'm not someone that's like quit drinking alcohol. Uh, but I just recognized for me, the relationship that I have with it wasn't, wasn't healthy. So, you know, for me, I feel like the type of person I attract, it's very interesting. And you, you know, you being a coach, you probably feel the same way, but it's like you, you attract people who are similar to you in a way, you know, and I feel like a lot of people who I gravitate towards are, you know, they're either creative or artist in some way, shape or form, and just trying to work through maybe some addictions to just gain a little bit more control over their creativity. So I really just try to encourage people to first off, just start where you are, get a journal and really just start to uncover what's going on for you. I don't push meditation on people, but I highly encourage it because I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of mysticism around meditation and at the end of the day it's really just becoming mindful of your breath and aware that you are a thinking being. You are not your thoughts, you are a thinking being. So once you can start to detach from the prison of your thoughts, you just have more choices in the world. And that's something that I really just try to communicate not just through words but just through actions and just by the way I show up. And um I've just found that, you know, one-on-one coaching is great, but what I've really leaned into is group coaching. Like I love getting a group of people in a room and just having that osmosis and that energy of just having different people share their stories and their experiences and having other people to bounce different ideas off of one another. That really has been uh, just a huge part of, I think, me just helping people to just become more aware of that inner strength in them to go out and you know really shine the light that's in them. Yeah. Wow. Were there any last words for the listeners? You know, at the end of the day, what I, what I've been kind of going around with Joseph is, um, 
this life thing, you know, some people say you only live once, you know, a Buddhist might disagree, but let's just say we live only once. I, I just want to encourage people to be kind to your mind and just get to know who you are. You know, that self-love that comes from being kind to yourself and showing grace to yourself really does go a long way. You know, I know a lot of people who are good to other people who are giving to other people, but when it comes to reciprocating that to themselves, there's a part of them that feels selfish. And what I like to say is it's not called selfish love. It's called self-love. When you can take care of yourself and monitor your own emotional scale, uh, your capacity to love and to give just expands. So I just really want to encourage people just to be kind to your mind and just create that space and grace for yourself that you would for, for a close friend. Well, brother, thank you so much. Listeners, if y'all want to get in, in contact with Kerry, um, he's a wonderful guy. He's a coach. And you can reach him at uh, kuman, Y-O-U-M-A-N.com. He's also on Instagram as Kerry Human. Brother, thank you so much for reaching out. And um, I, I am looking forward to building an amazing friendship and uh, with you. And we're even maybe one day we can link up again. So thank you for coming on the show, brother. Really appreciate this, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Through Pain podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to share with a friend and leave a five-star review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcast host so you won't miss a single episode. You're one step closer to finding true freedom and breakthrough.